0: baseball season's almost here and there's never been a better time to check out draftkings.com america's favorite daily fantasy baseball site where you could win huge cash prizes every day daily fantasy means no season-long commitment every time you play it's like a new season head to draftkings.com now and use code athlete to play for free in the opening day hundred thousand dollar fantasy baseball contest first place takes home 10 grand enter athlete for free entry now at draftkings.com that's draftkings.com Morning. This podcast may contain mature language. So if you're not comfortable with that, earmuffs. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, uh, I think, is the most requested guest uh, on the show. From when I started doing this, I've gotten texts and emails and just generally, like, writer friends. I've said, when are you going to have Levine on the show? Levine being David Levine, my lifelong best friend, creative partner. We've uh, made all the movies that I've made, uh, I've made with Dave. And uh, basically everything from Rounders on, we've done together, except that um, I think that's taken a ton out of me. Somehow during that time, Levine, you've written six novels also. Well, it's amazing that I had to write six novels and and write four in this series to sort of time it so that one would come out during the era of podcasting so that i could sort of make the leap onto this runaway train which is the moment welcome on to the moment dave and i'll tell you uh your book is coming out today yep signature kill and even if you weren't my brother my lifelong best friend who knows things about me nobody else uh, ever will i would say that people should buy and read the book, buy two of them, three of them. You gave me the friend endorsement, which undoes everything. Yeah, that's the worst thing. Yeah, that's terrible. We have, a, we have a friend, don't we? Who, we do. Who's a, uh, a critic, and he would write reviews in the, in the beginning saying, these are great guys. Let me tell you why I also like the movie, which really just kills the veracity of the endorsement. That said, there's no way I could give you an endorsement. I mean, yeah, it's pretty clear. My endorsement, anyone who knows why my endorsement would matter knows you're my partner. See, see, it's, it's called. It's a catch twenty two, Dave. Yep, I see. I see the bind. That's. But by the end of this, they're gonna know that it doesn't matter. That I'm in the tank. They're gonna <laughs> right. know that it's a legit thing because Go they're good. gonna hear you talking. Absolutely. Uh, even if I. But listen, what is the what's the famous uh, quote on Pete Olson's book that Norman Mailer wrote? Uh, l- Literature is thicker than blood. I than think water. so. No blood. Blood is. Thicker. Blood is th- Blood is thicker than water, but literature is thicker than blood. It is, damn it. And so that, in and, and the same way that the Mailer... Just because Pete was his nephew, there's no way that he would sell out with an endorsement. Not Norman Plus, Mailer. Book was amazing. How good's the book, by the way? The book way. is great. It's an excellent book, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. Yep. This is the problem. Dave and I uh, basically could have an indecipherable conversation for an hour, and that wouldn't do anybody any good. Yeah, maybe what they get. It's what most people get um, when they call us, and... Uh, talk to us on the phone. But, dude, I am really glad you're here because, um, this is the truth, you know, people ask me questions all the time and I do find that when I'm answering a lot of their questions, you know, the answers are pretty much things that you and I have learned together or they're things that I learned from talking to you. Um, And I do think that, you know, you are the, I mean, you're definitely the single most influential person uh, to me in my development as a writer and somebody who became a, a person who was living, you know, trying to live a, the life of an artist because I watched you do it for like seven years or eight years before I started. So, um, all, all the joking aside, like, uh, I think this is a valuable thing to do and I'm glad that you're here to do it. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, every few minutes I'll say buy Dave's book, signature kill, which is out today. Yep. Amazon just... loop that in, cut it in. Because they can get it on Amazon or they can get it if they go to a... If they br- can find a bookstore. Brick and mortar bookstore. Yep. Barnes and Noble. Yeah, it's available anywhere that people want to get books. So um, they should do that. All right. I think this is perfect. Here, I, let me ask you this question. How much of our shared worldview, for real, do you think we really got from The Godfather and Stripes? Like percentage-wise? Yeah. Uh, a Really a huge amount. An uncomfortably large amount. Like, maybe like a full 20% from The Godfather as far as strategic thinking. And then, which is ridiculous because, you know, it's not like it's some canonical thing. It's like a sort of a pulpy novel at at the outset before it became fancy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Stripes, you know, too much of the, you know, another 20%, but just all of the sophomore humor. Yeah, of just our basic personalities. Yeah, that's unfortunate. One kind of we built our characters around, sadly, and the other our personalities. Yes, and we probably flip-flopped them. Oh, no. We, you think we chose <laughs> it's wrong? possible. That could explain a lot of problems. So, yes. Um, you know what's going to be strange about this? Whenever I do an interview, I'll start answering with we. We did this and we did that you know, perplexing the interviewer for the most part, unless I can remember once in a while to mention, you know, my filmmaking partner, Brian Koppelman, but now I'll be saying we to you. No, I know who we is. So, you know, it's going to fold in on itself. It will, but I'll I'll keep things, I'm a professional, I'll keep things straight. That's good. Am I going to get my moment experience when you're going to set it up and do the thing of like, so there you are, you've gone to Hollywood, you've left Hollywood, it didn't work out in certain ways, you find yourself back in New York, and... You're not sure if, if novel writing or screenwriting is the way to go. How do you process that? Which way do you go? That would seem like it would be your moment. And if I were somebody who was going to go at this uh, on a sort of a, a level sixth of the depth of the pursuit of chasing this down, I'd go there. And that's on there. I've written that down as a question to ask. Just to have as a backup. Oh, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about that moment where you left. No, 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 dude. You're eight years old. You're living in New York, Right yeah as an eight year old yes comfortable with the people that you grew up around keep going, spool it out well you were weren't you where'd you grow up first i uh, I'm not gonna to go into both parts I could do both yes, parts you should you should do the answers too um it's very unlikely you're gonna hear anything you didn't know um Brian today but so yeah I'm eight years old I'm living in new york uh in in long island great neck and go ahead you have to ask the rest of the question oh, you no. have to ask oh i'm gonna ask you No, know, you want me to ask <laughs> i'll ask yeah listen you because i've been thinking about this I've, I've been trying to figure out for a long time you know for like 30 years um you have the most rigorous uh sense of self-reliance pretty much of anybody that i've met and you have since we met when you were 14 and um, I think a big part of that, I've always thought. But I want to know from your perspective. You know, you didn't. Your parents got divorced, and your mom moved you to Colorado when you were eight, right? Right. I think it was nine. Yeah. Uh, and have we met? And uh, you often say eight, fourth grade, but um, fourth grade? I went to Colorado for for fifth grade, so I think okay. it was nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. sure, that makes sense. So right, but you skipped a grade, so I would have thought eight. But what do you remember what it felt like to you to have to move cross country with just your brother and your mom to a place that where this sort of all the external stuff was totally different, but also like um, a lot of the way um, people related to one another was very different. Um, Yeah, I I do remember it very well. You know, we um, we were sort of comfortable growing up. We lived in Great Neck and we used to go skiing in Colorado. We had a ski condo in Snowmass. And I guess as things weren't working out between my parents, my mom felt that she was liking the lifestyle in, in Colorado more. So when they decided to get divorced, um, yeah, my mom said that we were going to go move out there. My brother and I were going to move out there with her. We moved into the ski condo, which like on a lot of levels seems sort of uh, you know like you're going to be on a permanent vacation or something. But suddenly when you're in a place where you used to go skiing for a week or two a year and you have to go to school in town, um, things changed a lot. You, you know, We became aware right away of this sort of divide back then between, between the locals and the tourists. And I had always been a tourist and sort of enjoyed like this great idyllic time when I was out there skiing with my family. Suddenly I'm living there and, and the local vibe was very much against the cosmopolitan visitor thing. So I was just kind of caught between both worlds. I didn't know, you know, why I didn't feel comfortable there. And there, I had come from a place where being smart and doing well in school was very socially acceptable and sought after. And I went to a place in Colorado where suddenly, if you were intelligent or showed any intelligence, you were sort of, you had a target on your back. And they would go after you. And you know they would an insult would be what are you smart, and you would find yourself in this weird position of wanting to defensively say no. And you know if you say that a few times in a row, you start to head in that direction. You start to so, believe <laughs> it. Yes, so it was an odd place to be. Well, yeah, and I'm, uh, and I know uh, that you had to make a series of decisions about like who you wanted to who you wanted to be. Then I mean, it's a funny thing that like do you say no or yes when someone says are you smart? But how did you think about? fitting in and wanting to fit in or making a decision that you didn't care about fitting in. You know, I, uh, in, I, I, read a short story you once wrote about this called Aspen Days and you, wow. uh, bringing back all the old, uh, horribly written chestnuts. No, no, no. Well, I, I re- when I remember reading it and thinking it was a great story and
1: I remember like the 18
0: the depiction of, um, of the, that life of being those kind of questions being put to you of having to maybe fight was really on the table. Like I didn't grow up in a way where I really ever had to fight unless it was because I was such a wise ass in a bar that, um, I forced it to happen, you know, or at a party or wherever. But it, it seems to me like, you know, this idea of figuring out how to become capable, being able to handle yourself started then. Is that right? Well, you know, none of it was, was super conscious because at that age, when, when you're a boy of that age, you don't know who you are. You don't know. You know who you're supposed to be, so if you throw in a couple of stressors like that, then you can end up super confused um you know there was like this sort of attitude against against me because I hadn't grown up there from the beginning since I was sort of like this out of town person i didn't fit in with the locals naturally um, I would try in a certain way it didn't really it just didn't it didn't take it wasn't convincing there was the fact that i was jewish and there were about two other jewish kids there that was another reason why i stood out and i don't think that the idea of fitting in completely was ever really going to work out you know i did make some really good friends there i would seem to make a great friend and then the person would move away after a year or two and you know i didn't take it personally i didn't think they were actually moving because we were friends no, right but, the sense but of it was loss... like a, it's a transient place right so you would start to try to build a life and then like your buddy would move away and you'd start over but I think the thing in me, I just felt like there's got to be more to it than this, and I, I got to get out of here was basically what I was thinking at some point. You had a you consciously like had the notion of I'm not going to be one of these people who lives here or, or, or yeah. I, I mean, understand. I would I would go back to the East Coast for summer camp to see the rest of my family, and you know, started taking these summer trips, which is where where we met, and I would hang out with these with these other kids who just seemed more um, familiar to me. And so about halfway through high school, I said "I said to my mom that I wanted to move back east and live with my dad. But, you know, it seemed to me you were also, by having lived there for so many years, six years, that you would also, in a way, become other to the people you came back to. Um, yeah, you know, I started to, I sort of socialized into this world of, you know, keg parties when you're 13 years old and going out and, like, hunting and fishing with people and camping out, having BB gun wars with kids, like, things that they just weren't doing back on Long Island. Right. So when I went back, it was like, okay, I don't really fit in here either. Yeah, because in certain ways, the kids in Long Island were faster than you. They were doing things that you didn't know about, but in other ways, you were, it seems to me, you were like a grown-up, and I always would look and think you were... You were sort of in neither – you were in neither world. Like you weren't really a country kid, but you weren't really like um, ever – it didn't seem to me fully comfortable when you had to come back because you were it, – it, I don't know. It seems to me like you had to build your own set of values in a way that most of us didn't bother thinking about that stuff till we were much older. Like, But why do you think that is? Like you did – I mean we are joking about The Godfather, but it had it did have an impact on you and on me as, as kids. But also – it did seem to me, even when we met, that there were like rules that you had started to build about loyalty and your expectations of people, and I'm wondering if it's because that's how you dealt with these kind, of like um yes, yeah, I think I was just making it up as I went along, and I was looking for some sort of way to codify things so that it made sense. I was yeah. looking for order when I felt there wasn't that much around me, yeah because do you think that's part of what led you to like to the books and movies that you were were interested in I mean before you started writing them yourself uh you know well the first thing that that led me to those things was just the complete level of escape i mean when i would find a great book that really captivated me or a movie it would just take me out of my existence for however many hours you know it would take to consume the thing um and that was where i wanted to be even if i was sitting home on a friday night um watching one of the three channels they had then because there wasn't even really like cable TV up there. If I could hook into like the Clint Eastwood triple feature or whatever with commercials, I would just watch it for six hours and it would just take me out of where I was. And that's what I was interested in finding. Yeah, those characters, you know, it strikes me that in in your work, in our work, but also in your work, uh, always, you know, these, these characters who, like a they're trying in some way to recapture a a part of themselves that was that was taken Um, whether they even if they know they can't it's like they're they're aware something's missing even if they can't exactly name it and I do think that's something you walked around with for a long time does that make sense to you Um, yeah I mean that's totally resonant for sure Um, it's funny too because I i I would remember going to movies over and over back then they wouldn't have like seven, theater, seven films in one theater. It would be one film and they would keep it there for like three weeks, yeah. you know? And I would see them over and over. Like if Jeremiah Johnson was playing there, I would go like six times in two weeks just because there was nothing else to do. Right. That's all I wanted to do. I mean, that makes do. a huge impression. Yeah, I mean, these things start to become like grooved into you like an old record. But yeah, but this idea of... Um, it's funny. I mean, when you and I were 19... Uh, the uh, you know it's, we're so much less than but this idea of like what it meant to be man <laughs> was really important to like uh, it seems like maybe it got codified as I mean I'm I'm wondering you know I do think that these characters who you would see who you would read about gave you something to aim at when like certain of the male figures you're like, I love your dad not, obviously I love your father and it's not about but I'm saying you were away from your father, right? He was across the country most of the time. And I'm just wondering how you how you built what it meant to be, like, um, a responsible a man. Because that idea of um, self-sufficiency was very important to you for a long time. It's in your work. Sure. You know, the, the male figures in my family, in my life back then. Like, so my dad was a young guy. He had a family. It didn't work out with the wife. Suddenly the family moves across the country. He did his best to... Visit, have us come visit, stuff like that. But, you know, that's not the same as having your father in the house every day. I was really close with my grandfather. He he lived in New York. It wasn't like I was going to have daily phone calls with him. I would talk to him pretty often, but he wasn't like a day-to-day figure in my life. Um, my other grandfather, who I wasn't super close with for various reasons, was was a, a heavyweight boxer who had fought Joe Louis for the championship. So that sort of made this big impression of, of sort of manliness over, over the whole family. And as a, as a young man, you're trying to figure out, like, what it means to be a man. And even when I moved back and was living in the house with my dad, it just happened to be a time in his life where he was traveling pretty much every weekend for the last couple of years that I was in high school. So there was nobody home, so I was sort of alone and left on my own devices. And you're trying to figure out what it means to be a man. I, you know, I just had to come up with it on my own. So I think I was pulling from any place where there was an influence. And a lot of that was books and and movies. And, and uh, at that time, had you had the clear thought that you wanted to be somebody who did those things with your life, who was writing and making these things, you know, when you came back to great neck for your junior year of high school and for that first year your brother wasn't there he was there he came with you yeah. right away so you guys both came back from colorado mm-hmm. to long island you were in the house a lot just the two of you were taking care of him a lot yeah. which was also a huge amount of responsibility i think um it's weird you know it just occurs to me i mean you have not really taken your foot off the gas of responsibility since you were like when, when's it going to blow dave Wait, I, that was pretty much my 20s, wasn't it? I don't know. You, it seemed like it. But you were still like pursuing in a dogged way this writing thing, incredible amount of discipline, even during I those. I think that I, I might have even snowed you. I was definitely drinking and partying no, more I than that. I was writing. No, no and, I know that. I think I was trying to make it look like the reverse. But, I mean, the amount of work product that I produced and the amount of time I spent on that was so minimal from, you know, recovering from the night before, setting up the next night out, and I don't know, I don't know what, going to karate I, I, class. You got married at, what, how old were you? Uh, I was 27. Right. Yeah, so you're talking like six years, basically. Yeah, yes. Yeah. You so think you had six it years It seemed of longer at the time. Looking back, it seems like a blip, but like, yeah, those six years seem like a long period of just yeah. doing whatever There's I a wanted. song uh, that a guy named Michael McDermott wrote uh, about this one particular run that you went on with Michael uh, that people can find online. Michael was on the podcast early on. Um, it's called 11 Nights of Whiskey. And yeah. the other part of it isn't. It's 11 Nights of Whiskey and 12 Days of Pain. I, yeah, I think so. I think those are the numbers. You, you can't try to lock up with an Irishman in a long extended drinking battle. You can't win? Mistake, you you know. can't win? Not, not as a, not as a back, Jewish that, man. Not that particular Irishman man. I wasn't either. built for it. No, uh, I don't know. No, you were kind of built for it. But I would say even during that time period, I mean, I spoke to you pretty much every day in your 20s, and uh, you did do... Because I think it's important. A lot of people in their 20s are listening to this, and they they write me letters uh, about how to find an hour a day to do the work, or can they really accomplish something if they've got other things to do. And I mean, uh, yes, you went out a lot, and you were drinking a lot, but you also held down a job and you wrote two novels during that time period. So you did finish two novels in your twenties and uh, while you were doing all the rest of it. So how did you look at that? You know, one of the huge things was something that, that McDermott said actually, which was fascinating. He, he said, uh, well, I guess, you know, I used to hang out in my apartment, go, go around LA, go out, whatever. And sort of, wait for inspiration to seize me about what i should write about and you know good lines coming into my head and occasionally i would like rush over to a scrap of paper and write it down and i was like god you know it's just how come it's not how come it's just not coming faster why isn't there more and then one day mcdermott was like you know it's it's hard and and mcdermott's one of the biggest screw-ups like we knew in a way so it was great that it came from him he goes You know it's just tough like sometimes when when i sit down with the guitar for like the two hours that day and like i just don't have anything and i'm just sort of noodling around wondering when it's gonna when it's gonna happen but you know i just and i was like oh you gotta sit down and and (laughs) just try to do it and then hope it comes you don't just wander around hoping you're visited by divine inspiration so basically i had it backwards and you know the the stumbling drunken buddy had it straight and he clued me into it. So from then on, I started to have a much more disciplined approach where I would sort of clear the time and at least sit there in front of a notebook or a computer and like try to do stuff and then hope that I had good ideas. And you I mean, would to give myself a fighting chance. You would you know? do that like five, six days a week. Yeah, once I got the drift, you know, I should have been doing it seven days a week and for a lot more hours, but you know, at least I started to well, figure do it really out. Well, you really think that? You think more hours would have been better? You think why yeah, you had the yeah, energy in your 20s to do it? No. Yes, I think, you know, if I, if I, trying to make it concrete, if I could have figured out how to make it concrete sooner, it would have been better. But it's, it was very hard to see at that time. I didn't actually know people who had done that. I, I didn't know artists. You mean you didn't know artists even at college you, and, and even working in Hollywood, you would interact with them, but they seemed like uh, other, cause your first, what was your, you, you left college and then you worked in Hollywood for a year and a half, two years? Yeah, I worked for a couple of years in Hollywood, um, starting out as an assistant to producers and for literary agents, reading scripts, and then um, eventually becoming like a story editor at a production company. You did start your first novel then, when you were out there. I did, yeah. So I'm talking, you know, I was probably about 24. So a good couple of years had gone by when I told myself I was a writer, I want to be a writer, I should be a writer, but I did much less writing than I could have because I thought it was something that was going to happen to me rather than rather than something I had to do. You thought it was magically going to happen. But that, that that's interesting because even then, I think the outside perception, because of the way you attacked, like, your training, your physical training, and the fact that you would get pages done much more. You know, you're, one of the great things about our partnership, I think, is that, um, you know, you, I'll give, I'll, I'll buoy us by noticing when we do something good. And you'll prod us by noticing when something's not good enough. When you say that sounds familiar. And, uh, so even when you're saying, um, Oh, I wasn't really doing anything from the outside. You may not have been doing everything you could have done, but you were, you were taking steps at Yes. I was, I was doing some stuff for sure because you were writing short stories. I was writing short stories because that was the only thing I could finish. And, and you know, I wrote a screenplay. I did, like, um, you know, this writer's program called Writer's Boot Camp in L.A. that actually seemed useful compared to the other writing programs because it was long enough you would actually see through an entire draft of a screenplay if, if you were diligent. Like, I guess most people in that class didn't finish, but I finished one. So, you know, it wasn't very good. It was probably written quickly, but... I knew that I could do it because I actually did it. Because even back then, we would have these arguments. Because I was a blocked writer, but I had this crazy notion that somewhere buried within me was the talent to figure this out. And we would talk about whether, you know, hard work or talent. We've had this. We've been having this conversation for a long time, and I think we've each come around a little bit to the other one's point of view. Right. But at that point, you were clinging to the talent argument, and I think I was like hoping that that couldn't be true because I was waiting around and nothing was happening. So I was like, this better only happen for grinders, you know? Yes. And I think that what we've, certainly what I've discovered is uh, there are plenty of talented people who can't make it happen because they won't do the work. Um, And that the only way to find out if you have the talent, which is really like if we knew how to use language, right? The only way to find out if you're talented enough, unfortunately is the hours and hours of Labor. Right. Well, you've done it. You've unpacked that. You've laid it down here on the podcast. And we can put that one to bed. What? You think there's more to it? You think that there's uh You think we need to But you, know, you it asked me it. if I knew artists. And I did not know artists. I knew McDermott, who was a guy with one record, you know, out or recorded or something or in process of being recorded. And he seemed like a real artist to me. And I'd met a lot of screenwriters in in LA but for some reason I didn't connect them with being true artists and like at least two of them were really good but for some reason I just I don't know what I thought they had they seemed like they had some kind of like special rap or something well because it's true because one of those guys was Scott Rosenberg and right um was it or was that later was I wasn't thinking Scott. about him but yeah he's one of them for sure and the thing is that and and this is i think important What's that quote you've told me that Scott used to say about a good screenwriter? <laughs> he said something like, uh, a good screenwriter can write, write a saleable spec in the amount of time it takes a regular person to read one, I think is something like the quote. And do you think when you were a kid you thought he meant it? Well, I don't know if I thought he meant it literally, but it almost seemed like he could because— he went on such a tear there. And I was a little bit older by then. You know, I was probably like in my mid-20s. By the time, he was really blastin'. I mean, 20. How old could you be? You came to New York when you were 20, what, 5? Back to New York? So you could have been. He, he was like 24, 25 when I became aware of him, and he went on a, a tear. Oh, yeah. It seemed like he came out of nowhere and was writing and selling things so quickly. It was like, how did this happen? Was he in, in – like, who were the screenwriters? Because, I mean, the other part of it, what we now know is that Scott would uh, – he just basically like, yeah, he'd go out and party. him would just write for hours and hours and hours. Well, yeah. He, he put in he the time. the other half. Yeah. He would say he was great. At, um, he has the best rap of like anybody in the world. So he would <laughs> say that stuff. and <laughs> sure. you believed it. And so it was daunting. I'm saying that must have seemed damning to you in a way. Well, yeah. I was like, well, this guy's a natural. Like, how the hell do you do it if you're not a natural? You just sit down and like, you know, touch your computer and suddenly you're on the front page of Variety. So, did you have doubts then? Because it didn't, in the way that you worked, it didn't even seem to me like you had doubts. Um, yeah, I, I had doubts. I completely had doubts. I mean, I knew somehow that I had something and that I would that I had an ability to do this, but I was totally doubting the fact that I could figure out how to make the world notice it. Why? Because I just didn't understand how. You went from having your script done and printed, or your book or whatever, to a place where somebody in a position of sort of authority, um, who's getting paid to do it, would take your thing and and like fight for it or make it happen. I just didn't. Even though I knew some of them from work, it didn't. It I just didn't seem like it was possible at first. Yeah, you kept on doing it. Yeah, it was the only thing that I could sort of figure out how to do. I I knew, you know, I could tell enough from hearing stories about how it happened for people that, and, and, you know, those old saws that they teach you in college, like, you know, you've got to get the 400 rejection letters and it's the 401st and and that's when they say yes and all that nonsense, which, you know, it's true, but it's still annoying and nonsensical. Um, You know, I had to sort of stumble through that. And... How did you know, or when did you know, because this is a question I've been getting a lot lately, how did you know you weren't crazy? Like, how did you know you weren't deluding yourself? Did you get to the point where the work, like, how did you know you weren't I, didn't, I, I knew I wasn't crazy, but I thought I had a good chance of being a total loser, actually. You did? Not crazy. I was like, this isn't a crazy pursuit. I mean, you know, objectively, I can tell that I have a decent enough command of it that that like it's sort of in the ballpark. Um, But, you know, by the time you're 26 years old or something like that, the people that you've been friends with who who took the jobs on the executive track are now starting to become like vice presidents or like producing a movie or something like that, getting paid real money or like getting close to running a studio. And it's like, wow, you know, these guys have real careers and real jobs and making real money. They're flying around, they're making these movies, they're, they're working with movie stars, big directors, and it's like, you know, they're making things happen in the business, and I'm bartending and scratching out whatever draft of whatever thing, and it's like, I know, you know, I might not be crazy, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm not making great choices, potentially, and I might just be a giant loser. And you really felt that, you really felt, but you could, yeah. you were, but you were intractable somehow. I was intractable and I was such a loser that I couldn't envision myself doing something else. In fact, I remember when I started to get serious with, with Melissa, who's been my wife for almost 20 years, but at the time is just my girlfriend. I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe it's time that I sort of like take things, like maybe it's time you put away like the childish dream. And, you know, I've put five years into this. Maybe I should start trying to figure out a different path, like sort of the, the safer route or whatever. Yeah she was a lawyer and i was like you know when am i just going to keep bartending like how how long am i going to take this so i i remember um, a friend of mine worked at a big it's like an ad agency or something like young and rubicam or something like that and he said they needed a corporate writer to i don't know write brochures or some something there and it was a job that paid 35 grand a year and More than that, it was the kind of job where if you do it for two years, suddenly, you know, your salary doubles. Six figures can be within range in a couple of years. I'm thinking, I mean, that's just so far away in what I'm doing now. Maybe I should try it. And I went, uh, I put on my lame suit, my ugly tie, and I went down there for my interview. And um, I just broke out in a full body sweat. (laughs) It was like I was running a marathon in Central Park in August. It was like every pore was open. And I was like sweating, and I was thinking, I'm definitely sweated through my shirt. I just wondered if I was sweating through the suit jacket. It was like a physical reaction. It was like everything, it was totally the wrong place to be. And I I got out of there. I don't I didn't follow up. I had no idea if I was even in the running, if they were going to offer me that job. And I and I called Melissa and I was like, you know, can you leave work for a minute? I gotta see you. And we met up, and I just said, I just went and tried to do this thing and I can't do it. And she was like she was so great. She was like, you're so sweet for trying. Don't do that. You don't belong doing something like that. Uh, so that must have really put wind in your sails yeah, a little great. bit to feel like, oh, I'm understood. Then it, I least. thought she was crazy. Sure. I thought huh. she was crazy and I was the loser, oh, but it was great. She's proven that by yeah. hanging in for 20 years <laughs> Absolutely. at this point. We know. Um, and I mean, to get from there to where now today your book Signature Kill has come out. Yes. Which in uh, I've ordered a couple copies to send to my friends and I think everybody else should order because – all, all, no kidding, dude. That book haunts, as you know, because I was reading it. And this happens, this, you know, the the reward of all that work is now when you set out to do this stuff, it's just uh, you really can make people feel what you want them to feel. And um, I remember twice this happened to me reading your books. The first time on City of the Sun, which is the one you were nominated for a couple of awards and was a bestseller. And then this one, there are images in this book that were so haunting to me. I remember stopping and calling you and just being like, oh, dude, not fair. And I have to be the first reader. And I was like, oh, that's not okay. This is too, uh, too intense. Yeah, your curse is that you always read the stuff first before, pretty much before anybody else. At this point, though, I think I can turn out a pretty polished first, first draft so that it's not total punishment. And in fact, the one you read was the same one, I think, that went in to my agent in the book company. So you didn't have to see something that was totally... Oh, yeah. No, um, no, no, no. The book no, reads like a book. Yes, I've... No, I could start listening to all the short stories that I've uh, read for sure. But no, this book is... It is a haunting book. You know, when I got into the depths of the book, it took me a long time because of all the other stuff we were doing, the movies we were making and the documentary we were we were cutting and the show we, we were writing. So it was a, an extended writing period. And during that time, I was doing heavy research. I was reading tons of non-fiction um, accounts of serial killers. Because the book's about a, a serial killer and about the guy who tries to catch him. Catch him, yeah. So I was reading about these, in great detail, these serial killers, and I was reading psychological case studies on on sociopathic minds, and I was talking to criminal psychiatrists, and it did become, like, a bit of a labor and very haunting. And I, I wouldn't say it was I would have nightmares, but... I would definitely be plagued at night with like sort of disquieting dreams. and Well, you definitely gave people nightmares because I know on a couple of plane trips, you were sitting next to people who had to see you reading those (laughs) books with the pictures. Like you'd be reading, you'd open up a stack and it would be like the BTK book, the Dennis Ray, you know, all the different serial killer books. It's a great break to be sitting next to somebody on a plane and they have a dog-eared copy of Serial Killer with, pictures of richie cottingham yeah i mean Dan and like Bundy. the person can lean over to you and be like oh is that john wayne gates you're like no actually that's ed gein you see the difference is and then you know you could name all yes. the serial killers and what they did oh is that the guy who skinned the person no 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 that's the guy who'd eat them so yes i think that must have been horrible for people yes uh but it really does pay off in signature kill out today uh by david levine thing is though um from when we were little Creating a character like Frank Bear, I do think that this character—we, this is something we have never talked about—but I do think that um, you did manifest in this character, in a certain way, like your idealized version of what it would mean to be a man, and also your your sort of you put all of your. Uh, I wonder about this, like your your fears about if you were. Um, certain limitations interpersonally had met really had you'd allow them to like sort of gain hold that's what the character feels like it's a very real you know feels very real and really like he's really birthed from from stuff deep inside you well thanks you know he's definitely very real and vivid to me um you know he's a, a guy who's huge of stature he's He's, like, close to 6'6". He's, he was, like, 270 when he was younger. He kind of, like, carved down to, like, 245. He's super strong. He's super trained in physical fighting, all different kinds. He's good with guns. He's a guy who will, like, go into horribly dangerous situations. And he's, he's not, like, robotic or, like, a cartoon character. So he's not immune. He'll be super adrenalized, but he doesn't – he's not – physically fearful um he's dogged he has smart ways to attack incredibly difficult situations so in a lot of ways it's like oh man what an amazing guy to be like sort of like what a fantasy of a guy could just walk into situations he doesn't sort of spout one-liners but when he says things like they're often sort of the clever thing or whatever but you know on the other hand He's isolated. He's totally broken by something horrible that happened in his past. He's as savvy as he could be dealing with criminals, as sort of as ham-handed as he can be in interpersonal things. And I remember my agent or my my editor actually sending me some kind of an email about – I don't know. He made some kind of quip like, oh, very Frank Bear of you or something. And I wrote back like – well, you know, I I could hardly live up to him or something. And he he just wrote back, really? I mean, I I think, uh, you know, you've done quite a bit better than he has in life. And I was like, right, because, of course, he's like the archetypal, you know, broken, in a way, dead-end investigator, though he's not dead-end because as a a character, he does evolve and he has hope as a One of the inspiring, you know, um, clearly, and I I don't know if, if there's a way I can really get get at this but it is you know in my 20s as I was failing to find a way to do this and I would watch you hammer away at the boulder and just try to split the rocks over and over again it was incredibly inspiring and and made me know you know okay this is possible to do um and it's possible to do it every single day and it was like this huge example but I'd say even more inspiring just about like human capacity dude it is and uh This we've talked about, but not for a long time. And I wonder now on the other side of it, you know, it seems like the price of having as much responsibility as you did when you were young is that you have to shut down certain childish things way before you should. And I think you you did that, didn't you? Um, You know, honestly, I don't think if I look back at my life, I ever would have analyzed. That statement makes sense to me when you say it logically i'm like of course that makes total sense i've I've never applied that question to my own life though but but don't you think that the, the thing that since that uh don't you think that you had to make a decision at a certain point to really engage and risk sort of like getting hurt by re by trusting and re-engaging with with people in a way that you allowed yourself to um you know, to be at, at risk when you had sort of uh, cauterized that stuff at a certain point. Um, yeah, I, I definitely plan to. I'm going to definitely... You're going to do I'm that now? Risk. Yes. This could be the beginning. No, I. you know, yeah, for sure. I I definitely cauterized is a great word. I definitely cauterized certain sensitivities and definite, definitely vulnerabilities. Um, and things got out of whack in college because during a time especially in the beginning of college during a time when everybody's supposed to be having fun yeah i was not somehow i'd been used to and equipped to living on my own and take care of myself for a long time but i wasn't prepared to somehow do that and have fun and be balanced and happy and social in any way so things were definitely out of whack and it took me like several years, you know, and, and my grandfather died around that time, who I'd become very close to through the end of high school and the beginning of college. So when he died, that was just sort of further evidence, I guess, of my subconscious to just shut down. Yeah, this is not worth it. it's, it's not worth It's like, you know, I'm not doing that. So I, yeah, I became very um, insensitive in a lot of ways. And yeah, like, what did you expect of the world when you came out? You were insensitive in a lot of ways, but you mean to other people's feelings, but yeah, you know, in a weird way, it shut off your own possibilities of like actual like joy, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, how did you like? What was the process by which you busted through that? Do you think? Well, you know, when you live that way, you if you live in a way where you're going to limit your pain, yeah, you're going to just automatically and exponentially almost limit your chances for joy on the upside, and at some point that started to, that that realization started to sink in. And I realized, you know, that I just had to, you know, sort of just be courageous enough to expose myself emotionally, to make changes in my life that were hard to make and to, you know, end the relationships that weren't fully satisfying, face having nothing and being alone in order to open myself up to being in the right things. And you and know, it, it was a little bit of a process, but over the course of, Five or six or seven years, I sort of started to figure it out. Most of us never have the time or energy or wherewithal to to like even take the kind of inventory. Well, I had like, how time. did you create? I had the time because I like I had these dead end jobs and like I told you, I hardly ever wrote. So right. there was all this downtime in the middle of the day, basically. And would you journal then? Would you take? No. Like, would you run and think? Like how would you do I this? journal thinking? you know, things started to get more put together when I was probably around twenty four or twenty five. You know. So, uh, a friend of mine who actually became an artist she she was this girl who i knew in college and she became an artist after after school and told me about this book called the artist way which when i read it was incredibly illuminating because it talked about writing every day and finding ways to sort of safeguard your vulnerabilities so that you could feel comfortable exploring them all this stuff and it it talked about ways to shut out super negative criticism that could be crippling. And that was something that that came to me just at the right time and enabled me to, to really start working much more diligently. And around that time, you were going through your thing of having to sort of break through and leave your life as a music business executive and try to become a creative person. And I remember... Um, a huge tool of yours was was Tony Robbins' book. Yeah, Waking the Giant Within. Waking the Giant Within. And I remember that within a very close period of time, we sort of exchanged those books. Oh, yeah. And you did the artist way thing, and I did Tony Robbins. And those were sort of like the last pieces, and it coincided with us deciding to write the first script together. Oh, for sure. You gave me um, you gave me the artist's way. Right. I remember I had actually given you the Tony book, and you were doing it down at your job bartending. Yes. Behind the bar. And then I came to you one night, and I, and I said, um, um, I have to make this change. And you gave me the artist's way. And then um, I did that. Yeah, soon thereafter, we decided to write rounders together. But um, but when you started journaling every day, you were also, at that time, what what form, because because of your grandfather and because of just how you grew up, I mean, you've been doing some form of martial exercise, combat, your whole, almost certainly as long as I've known you basically well yeah for some reason ever since I was a kid I was just interested in this from from the first time I saw enter the dragon when I was like 10 years old I was like I have to learn karate and for some reason I didn't jump into it right away but I started doing it freshman year in in college then I transferred schools and didn't restart for a couple of years but when I moved to LA I got into it pretty seriously and I was going like all the time like at least four times a week. And then that's when I had the full-time jobs. And then when I quit my job, I think I was going like six or seven days a week. I was just so into it. And I was into the whole, like, uh, you know, ridiculous, like mysticism. Like you could become magical from karate and stuff. Um, And around that time, the UFC started. So I started getting interested in in jujitsu, though I didn't know where to do it. Um, So I also started... Just doing um, straight up boxing in addition to the karate and more kickboxing based stuff. Finally, um, you know, maybe five or six years ago, I jumped into the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, and I'm just I'm connecting. Yes, and each of these times, I mean, I remember your American free, your American freestyle karate teacher. Uh, you would find these people, I think, and then you would kind of throw in with them in various areas, and then like learn what you co- learn what you could. Yeah. And so you found what the well, limitations to, were, Yeah, right? It's hard to sort of like um, go in and start learning from somebody that you doubt extremely. Sure. That's not going to really work, especially when what you're doing is super hard and you've got to dedicate to it. So you have to you have to mystify them a little and think, oh, well, this guy's the best. Yeah. I remember you would come back because there was a period of time where I was crashing at that apartment in L.A. a lot. Um, we kind of shared it for a minute and- you would come back with like fat lip and broken you know, messed up <laughs> ankles. And I'd be like, what? And you'd be like, well, he said, this is how you got to do it. Yeah. I was like, are you sure? I mean, I definitely does-? bought into like the masochistic idea that if you weren't getting beaten up, you weren't training hard enough. You know what I mean? It was and that's great. a young man's game. Listen, it was great for me, as you know, because that was really, I mean, I was 24. That was prime wise-ass years. And uh, you definitely stopped me from getting hurt a bunch of times in bars. Probably by talking you out of mouthing off more than, uh, I don't really remember a lot of, brawls bursting out into the street no not bursting out into the street but I, I remember you getting chesty a few times when guys wanted to punch me in the face <laughs> no you don't you, you don't recall I could... chesty i'm like i'm completely bony huh? i got no i got no chest to it's no, the look in your eye is very chesty <laughs> okay it is like frank bear who's the main guy in signature kill which is out today by david levine it is out today and um even though i'm saying it with like a, a light-hearted voice the book is fucking great um but I realized there were these other teachers you found. And I think that people always are asking me about books or the influence of these things. I mean, when you left LA, you, you also went traveling. Um, and didn't you go, where'd you go? I left LA and I, and I moved to Paris for six months. And in a way it was just like, you know, somehow this idea got into my head, like probably from reading too much Hemingway that writers had to live in Paris for a while Paris was not even a place I ever particularly liked because I couldn't handle it when I would go there for a couple days on a trip. But I thought that somehow if I lived there, I could just take it in a little tiny dose every day and appreciate it. And in a way, it was just like a springboard to get out of L.A., which for some reason at that time in my life was not good for me. Why? What do you think? What was corrosive to you about that place then, and and what was What was it about that place in the life you were living as an executive out there that was an impediment to being an artist, a writer? Well, I was... I was people often ask, do I have to move to L.A.? You know, the and, and the answer is basically yes, because the percentages are with that answer. Um, but why for you was that not the answer? So, So I did it, and I thought that I was... I thought that I was being smart by working inside the system while trying to pursue my agenda as a writer on the outside of the system. And I thought that one day those things would seamlessly merge. I was meeting people at my jobs and I was socializing with like these other young people who were like sort of at my stage in the business. And I thought that, um, those people would automatically, when I finished the, the thing that was right, they would want to read it and help me sort of, um, you know break in as a writer. Yeah. What I didn't realize was they there was no way they were ever going to view me as a writer because if they were to help me make it as a writer while I was working right next to them, that would be sort of like helping somebody escape and you staying in prison or something right. like that. And you know, for some people those jobs are exactly what they want to do, but for some reason a lot of people are miserable in those jobs and And there just wasn't a lot of generosity there for for some reason, and I didn't understand it. You know, on some level, I guess, you know, somebody who would just be going to their day job and writing a script on the side isn't suffering enough as a a writer or something to be real in their minds. Well, I'm wondering if going to Paris, because even then you would make fun of yourself. Like part of you would make fun of, uh, like, you know, you would send me a picture of you at a cafe, and it would be, um, you know... I'm such a jerk, I think I have to sit at a cafe. But then part of you was putting a spell on yourself, I I wonder. I was, yeah. Like, I started drinking coffee, even though I didn't drink coffee before. But when I went to Paris, I would go to the cafes in the morning and drink these coffees and write. And... Yeah, I was, I was trying to, like, talk myself into it. And, put in, and, you know, I sent you a series of photos of me writing in cafes, and those were staged photos. No, of course. I mean, it wasn't like some paparazzi was, like, capturing me in the act. No. I would set it up, and I'd be like, take this picture of me, and I would, like, hold the pen. And I was writing with a fountain pen, which was really clownish, you know, because it was really fun to just have, like, the ink run on the page like that. Yeah, but it was amazing to me because, you know, there was no email back then or texting. Like, and it did, although no one likes the texting and email more than I do and the Twitter... But there was something about the fact that uh, we had to fight to stay in contact, and that when I would get one of those, when you were there and then you went to Argentina, and I would get some kind of communication from you, it was like, oh, look at Dave, man. He's like, he's really out there, like, you know, really making himself this thing. Yeah, after, after Paris, I went and lived outside Buenos Aires for about four or five months. Um, it was another one of those, like, Jump jump down hard so that so the springboard snaps you further away kind mm-hmm. of the, kind of things. But um And you would listen to tapes of like who else Bukowski and um um you know the, the incredible the guy uh oh, yeah these tapes. like Faulkner's Nobel Prize acceptance Henry Miller. speech and yeah Henry Miller tapes reading his work and talking sorry wait I don't want I stepped on you but Faulkner's Faulkner's Nobel acceptance, Henry Miller, yeah. doing some kind of a reading and and ranting. Somehow they were selling these bootleg cassettes down in like Washington Square Park. I think you were sending them to me. Yeah, well, then we found them and then you would like um, listen to them in this little- It's so funny. You would have to come by these things and they were like little treasures back then. Now it's just literally a Google search and you could listen to everything. But back then I had a phone that didn't even work. Oh, yeah, there was super hard one. You mean the landline didn't really work? Yeah, the landline didn't work. There were no cell phones and I was listening to cassette tapes of old authors talking about stuff. But, uh, you know, and you were down there with horse... I mean, you're down there with horses and on a... And, and you know, cattle... Helping people cattle ranch. Yeah. And... What do you think all that did did do? I mean, I remember you came back... I remember picking you up from the airport when you came back from Argentina. And you had hair down to your ass. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, your grandfather, the boxer, would have slapped you, I think. <laughs> you weighed, like, 115 pounds. And, uh... You were talking in some bullshit accent, but uh, I but think you I was become... speaking, speaking English to people that barely spoke English, so speaking... I started speaking pidgin English with a little Spanish, and I forgot how to speak English. You were speaking this very halting English. Uh, because I was not used to expressing myself in compound sentences, because nobody could understand it. But what's really, I think, powerful about it... I mean, it's funny how affected we... I mean, I'm sure it was absurd for, in a certain way, but also... There's something about, like, um, needing to show yourself that you could be a different. No, I I mean, that's totally what it was. I mean, what was I doing down there? I was bullshitting around. I mean, I wrote probably, like, 75 pages of of handwritten scrawl in four or five months down there. That was ridiculous. That was literally just trying to put more distance between myself and L.A. And what it really was, like, you know— Our uh, old friend Tony Gilroy likes to say, um, you know, when he gets a script writing job or he's going to set out to write an original, he does whatever research he's going to do and then he has to walk around the block for as long as it takes for him to start feeling special. I mean, basically, that's what it was. I was trying to convince myself that I had a special angle on things and I had something special to say in a special way. And I was trying to figure out, like, how to convince myself of that by doing these external things. Uh, But don't you think in the process of that ridiculousness you did find something, like, that you were on your way to figuring out who the hell you really were? Yeah, eventually, little by little, I did find out that, like, all I really need to do is, like, live in even a very sort of mundane place and just do a little bit of work every day, and I can do good work. Well, yeah, I mean, Siddhartha eventually makes that point to Govinda, right? Like, you know, you don't... Whoa, you You went (laughs) there? I went all the way back there, back to our uh, college life. But, no, but you did... uh, yeah, you. I mean, all right. I can. I can say it's also like in, uh, in that Stephen King book when the guy drinks the stuff to go take the magic trip in The Talisman. <laughs> uh, eventually, the guy says to him, uh, "You didn't really have to do that. You don't have to really drink the stuff. You just are that." Um, but, but most people, I think, don't. Again, these people who who want to be able to be do what you've done, and they might be made to feel foolish for taking these kind of risks, or think like, "Well, who am I to think that I can?" You know, go on some backpacking trip or like, like, don't you think as funny as you may think it is, you want to mock yourself that there was a utility in it? Yeah. I mean, especially when you're young, if you, there, there's a huge value in just jumping sometimes when you're not sure exactly where you're going to land. And if you're trying to make the jump into life as a creative person, it's just, it's just a metaphor in a way. And you know, I think my my dad always had like a real sense of wanderlust and like this romantic notion about traveling, and he would sort of voice that on me. And those were a few those those two times, Paris and Argentina, were cases where like I chose to believe him. And and you know, it didn't work out the way that he sort of described it would. Like it wasn't so fun as he painted it. Um so in a way, he was wrong. But on the other hand, I did get the value of just plunging into something where I had no idea how it was going to work out. And, you know, like we were talking about the whole self-reliance thing, you're in a place all by yourself. You just, you know, I would figure out how to do it, and that would somehow reinforce this feeling that I could figure it out. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about your grandparents, to each of your grandfathers, how you took different things. You know, the one who was a business a business success, but who also always spoke to you about how you think your way through things. And your other grandfather who did fight Joe Lewis for the heavyweight title. And I'm wondering, what do you think you pulled from, from each of those, from each of those men? Cause I think they've had, you've written about, I mean, they've had a big impact on you in a way that most people's grandparents don't. Well, you know, my, my grandfather, John paycheck, who was a boxer was, he was fascinating. And I, you know, I knew him. He he didn't pass away until I was in my 20s, I think. But the conversations I had with him were limited because he had Parkinson's, and I think that it was because of his fight career. I mean, they wore the small gloves then, and they didn't stop him quick, and they were 15-rounders. And, you know, at first I thought that it was amazing that he had jousted – with greatness by fighting joe lewis later on i found out how it was the dirty business of boxing that railroaded him into taking that fight years before he would have been ready and how it was practically like a strong arm deal and there was no it was a setup basically there was no way he was going to win um you know i did get to have a few conversations where he would that were basically about physical courage actually and in a way that regular boxers never talk about it. In interviews, they never talk about that aspect of it, about actually being afraid and the pain and stuff like that. My grandfather talked about that. And my other grandfather was sort of this titan of business. And he was a guy who seemed to feel that he knew everything about the way the world worked. And that was just an amazing view for a kid to have, to watch a guy sure that he was right all the time. But yeah, but wouldn't he also tell you things like uh, about how you can always, uh, like people can take advantage of you, but you like the elevator story? Yeah. Well, I mean, he was somebody who always, when he would give you a little piece of life advice, like it had to be right because he was so successful. So he was very sure of what he was saying. So, you know, very early on, he said, you always have to watch what people do because eventually they'll do the same thing to you. And... You know, it's a simple thing seemingly, but the first time you hear that, that's just packed with wisdom. And the first time you see that play out, you're like, oh my God, this guy knows everything. And then the thing you're referring to, I think, is he was a developer of of um, office buildings in New York City. And there was a time when when I guess the mob, some low-level mob guy, it must have been low-level, tried to strong-arm him into paying or doing something and my grandfather told him to fuck himself. And I don't know exactly how he worked it out or if this guy was just so low level that he went away. But, you know, he told me that. And I just, that blew my mind that somebody would have the stones to do that to a guy who was in the mob. I, just, I loved it. There, you know, an elevator played into it in some way, but I can't remember how. You'll remember it. It was something about then the elevator. Do you remember? Yeah, the guy, the guy... Was demanding, I, you know, I don't remember exactly. The guy was demanding use of the elevator or rights to the elevator or something. No, and like I think that. your grandfather did something where he said uh, he turned in the plans then without an elevator. He, he did something where where he used what the guy was asking for, uh, basically, against, to screw the guy against the guy. Um, when we put this in a movie, it'll be better. It'll <laughs> it'll be it'll actually out. be thought out and have sort of like a beginning, a middle, and an end. So what do you think you learned about? You shouldn't ask me stuff like that. You know I have a horrible memory for this stuff. You remember okay, but that much was a, than yeah, me. but that one was like I remember hearing that story when we were kids and just being like, oh I'll never forget that. Of course now I've forgotten it too. Well that was 25 years ago. It was a long time ago. Um, long before you wrote Signature Kill, the which is available today, um, and everybody should buy and uh, and read. I read it for sure. I mean it's good if you'd buy it, but you should definitely definitely read it. Um, but uh, this book thing didn't come easily for you you know you wrote uh, sorry I have a couple things one it's interesting when you talk about all those guys in LA who you were hanging with who looked at you one way and whether you could escape I was just trying to think about it we won't name them but if it was a if that was a group of eight or nine mostly guys yeah you and Rosenberg who chose this artist's path each are still going strong all these years later Yes. And I think only one of those people, two of them had successful runs, but I think only one of them is still really doing it. seems For a lot of years, it seemed like, oh, maybe you made the wrong choice. But then... In the beginning, it definitely seemed like it, because these guys all had the good jobs and I was struggling along. But, you know, sadly, it has turned out that in this crew, there's been... A lot of divorces and a bunch of trips to rehab and stuff like that but i mean that's just the nature of the business and the nature of the town in la it's a tough town to sort of keep your bearings in i mean i wonder now there are so many more like people who come out of like grad school who go to it that was almost like the end of people who weren't grad school people doing it it seems like they're a lot of the younger execs now are like have a higher degree of responsibility, or maybe it's just because I'm thinking it's probably you exactly think it's the same. The same, yeah. I think it's been the same since the day they set up out there. You think they're just partying just as hard? There's just there's just so much ambition, and there's only so many spoils to go around. So when you first started showing your material to them and would get rejections, you know, I talk about the the rounders' rejections a lot, but you had been dealing with it for longer. I mean, what did you learn about rejection then and about its impact on you and, and how From to those it? guys that were my friends? From that it. and then also just as everything that happened up until we sold Rounders. Well, I, you know, listen, I was friends with those guys, but when they sort of were indifferent to whatever I was sending, I didn't, I, I couldn't blame them. I didn't feel super indignant because I knew the kind of friendship we had, which was like a cordial kind of collegial thing, but yeah. I, they weren't like my blood brothers. And I knew that they weren't going to kill themselves. And I, and I guess on some level, I knew that the material like wasn't fully realized yet. I was still on the younger side. I mean, there could be, um, there's some screenwriters that come out of the box when they're 19 or 22 and they write amazingly mature pieces. That just wasn't my, that wasn't my path. Um, you know, I read thousands of screenplays and there were only a couple dozen that were good and maybe like five or 10 that were great. And I really felt like I recognized them and I felt like that was my grad school. And when we, when we had finished Rounders, I knew that it was good. I just knew somehow I had a moment of objectivity where the effort that I put in and what I had riding on it receded for a minute and I could just see it for what it was. And I just knew compared to what I would read that we'd done something that was really good. Yeah. I remember a week before we finished it, we thought we'd finished it. And you had said, we have to put it down for a week before we like look at it again. And then you called me and and you were like, um, and this is something that's repeated itself over and over throughout the years. Uh, one of us realizes, but you were like, um, it's all fucked up. It's doesn't work at all. And I was like, what do you mean? It doesn't work at all. And, uh, it was a small... You We were, had to change like three little Yeah, we things. had to change yeah. three tiny uh, lines. And I know what they were. It doesn't matter, but I do know what happened. Um, I can say it. You know what? There's no reason not to say it. You came in. Matt didn't... Mike's. Came, Mike they were little li- story markers. It was the, that at that time, Mike McDermott, it wasn't clear that he wanted to uh, go to Vegas for sure, that he was definitely rolling it up. We had left it to your v- imagination yeah. and vague, and then that's when you came in, and you were like, when I mean, we came up with the idea of... You know, the Vegas and the Mirage, and that's why he was doing it. And it gave his character um, an angle of attack, like something that he, a big goal that he, that he wanted. Right. And then, yeah, when we did that and it was done, you did say, like, this is going to sell. But when we got there, started to get the rejections in the beginning, did you, did you wonder or did you know still? Well, I remember feeling horrible one night when we thought a studio was going to come in and oh, they didn't yeah. buy it. But that's for some for some reason, our representative at the time who was like super new made the classic rookie mistake of like telling us that something was definitely going to happen. And then it didn't happen. So I felt horrible. That could still happen. But, you know, now I don't believe it anymore. Yeah, well. We're waiting on a bit of specific news tonight and we're told it was going to happen. We could be reliving it tonight, Dave. Yeah, except this time we're not believing. No, not at all. We were, yeah, we were, you were bartending. Mm Mm-hmm. And we were told that our good friend Mike DeLuca. Now our good friend. We didn't even know him then. Back then he was just like this legendary guy we were dying to work with. And this producer and the manager said, Mike is Gonna, New Line's going to buy your They're going to buy Rounders tonight. They're going to come in with the offer. And, we, and they, our they, wives... They, when they I, knew a time. They said it's going to happen by, like, at end of business today. So I was working at a restaurant, and it closed early at, like, 1030. So you came over, and our wives came our over. Wives. And we waited by the phone because, like... The restaurant closed all around said, us, yeah. and the owners of the restaurant had champagne out. Do you remember? Oh, that's Because we had said, because we knew them, because you weren't yeah. there. And they had taken the champagne, and were about to pop... They didn't pop the corks, but... And we just sat there. And I remember... And no call came. There was this champagne up on that... Not even the... But they put it on the tables because the bar was in the back. And I remember all the chairs getting pushed... Put up. And us looking at each other and our wives and just feeling like those... That's why Big Night hits me so hard. <laughs> that movie. The Stanley Tucci movie. Because you we left that night and I remember just slinking out of there thinking, Oh, it's not... It's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, we really believed it. We really had the hook. I mean, it was sunk the the hook was sunk wasn't it i don't know why we thought it was a good idea to believe what somebody in hollywood would tell us at that point we haven't made that mistake very often since not then. really yeah someone yesterday said to me i always proceed as if it's definitely a yes and i take all and i was just like what life are you was that how is that possible i mean, i'll tell you later i don't want to tell him but then yeah deluca ended up uh, later uh, making movies with us being a a great advocate and ally for us and later told the story that that day someone like bum rushed him and made up some story that like it was already getting sold somewhere else. And he was like, sat there and read 10 pages and was like, screw these guys. Right. He wasn't taking the hard side. Well, he didn't picture us sitting alone in a restaurant. He thought we were like, you know. I don't think you would have cared. No, he didn't want the pressure. He's too cool a customer for that in all the right ways. Um, Heard right, a couple more things before we shut this thing down. So you learned about rejection, what exactly? How do you process it now? Oh, what so, do you believe So what we were talking about, like those, those guys I was friends with in the business, yeah. so that was a more personal form, but, you know, I submitted a bunch of stuff. I submitted my first novel, I think, to a bunch of publishers, and I'm sure I got rejections, and I know I submitted short stories to magazines and did got you, rejections. Did you get to a place where you didn't, like, basically, do you go through a process? This goes back to this question people ask about, I don't know if they're delusional, Would you then try to look at the the comments and just do your own like sort of objective analysis of the comments against the work? Well, no. I mean, the comments were progress. Like the worst ones were like the form, the slips they would drop in. There were no comments, so there was like nothing useful about it. When I would get one that would have handwritten comments on it, it was like hugely positive because that made me realize that like I'd broken through the screen, you know, the monolith and the anonymity. And somebody bothered to write back. So that was hardening. But yeah, talk a little bit about um, uh, getting feedback. You know, one thing that, another thing that I definitely learned f- from you was how to be really honest when people ask for, I mean, just, uh, no one, you shouldn't have to say really honest, honest when people ask for, it's kind of a binary thing. When people Save ask that for the for the Garner, when people ask for, oh, for the Garner podcast, yeah. the Brian Garner. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, we can talk about that for sure. Um, but when people ask you for feedback, and it's always been the case on something they've written, you are uh, really rigorous in your, in your honesty. Yeah, well, now you're talking about giving rejection rather but is, than getting it. But is it? that what you want also? And how did you come to decide? Like, it'd be so much easier to just sort of shine people on. Like, how did you decide? Well, I, there's a school of thought out there in the business where it's like if somebody gives you something you say this is great and then you just never do anything with it in the hopes that they go and become big on their own and remember you as a fan and then maybe do business with you down the road. Yeah. Um, You know, I guess people have like succeeded somewhat by doing that. I'm not going to do that. I never had people that I could give um, material to that would really give me like considered feedback. They would either just never call you or I don't know. I just, I I never sort of got like good critical thinking. So I guess I think to myself, well, what would be the most useful to me if I was them and I was getting it from a person. So I try to give something that's like not particularly emotional, but that's like my opinion as straightforward as I can give it. If I have some, if I have something to add that might help constructively, I'll do it. If not, I'll just tell them what I think is wrong with it. And, you know, I guess if their feelings are hurt, that sucks. Well, but the ones who come back... Yeah, if they quit, they quit. Then that's that. But, you know, I've seen other people go further and get much better. Yeah, in a way, you kind of answered a question I had, which is what do you think the benefits in, like, other parts of your life are of all the the physical training you've done, the fighting? And I, I wonder if it's... This is somewhat connected. It's yeah, all connected. I mean, for me, for sure it is. I, you just... You know, you just discipline yourself and try to numb yourself to the, the sort of physical pain or what it costs if you're running or boxing or doing some kind of a workout. And then, you know, that allows you to sit through the uncomfortable time when you're in that chair trying to figure out how to write something and you don't know where it's going to go. and you, All you want to do is stop. You just keep going. And then when somebody gives you comments that say you suck, you, you try to let it roll off you like you're doing your 800th crunch or whatever it is. You know, it's just a mindset. Well, it's a mindset I've totally tried to ape to the best of my ability. And other than when you're eating a salad and I'm eating mushu pork for lunch, uh, I'm able to. That's the, the, the final frontier is still to be able to uh, eat. The, I still don't know. How the hell do you eat the lettuce? It's very boring. What, you're eating lettuce. I'm next to you. I'm, I'm dining out on, you know, cheeseburgers with fried uh, onions and you're eating like four. If you're on a, on a great day, you'll add radicchio. Explain. I don't understand. How do you do it? I don't know. You know, listen, if I eat the heavy pork thing, then I get Logie. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to stay sharp. I'm trying to stay with you. You're able to convert that pork into mental energy. And I'm trying to stay with the dog sled, man. It's not <laughs> yeah. easy. Well, this we might have just. People are always asking the the key to the successful teamwork. We might have just, uh, we might have just stumbled onto it. Dave, man, uh, this is see. This is you, you. You didn't. It's taken a long time for you to come on the show. Well, really, what did it, what did I have to say before this? Before this moment had arrived, and honestly, you're amazing at the podcasting. You ask these annoying questions that force you out of falling back on the road answers Good. that I've given in a hundred other interviews. I had to try to think of things. I'm sure I was stuttering and stumbling. You tried to Roy Firestone me and get me to cry. You went too early with the divorce stuff. You should have softened me up. Maybe no, you should have make... gone by way of this my goes own kids. This back to the Godfather stuff. I can't try my, to make you cry. My own kids You're being protected. born. Maybe you should have walked me through that, softened me up with that, then hit me with, you know. Maybe if you would have gone, your oldest kid is around the age you were at when your you, parents got divorced. You want me to make Maybe you cry? Maybe I would have gone, I don't think you can now. I think I the veil's oh, been lifted. I could get you. I think I gave you a roadmap. It's too late now. I mean, I could take you right through every girl who ever let you even touch her skin. That's, I know. I was wondering if you were going to do that, but what a boring slog for everybody in the world and really not that interesting. I could paint them in it's a not way not that would make, make them cry. seem very fetching. That's fathing. not to make me cry. Some of them made you cry then. Nah, those days are long gone. Now I'm with the ultimate woman for me, and so there's no reason. Well, I for do that. feel there's a little redemption and preparation. I started to say this last week with Eddie Burns, and they and somehow this part got cut off, or some of it was there. But you know, the only speech I've ever tanked in my life was at your bachelor <laughs> party because I didn't prepare because I was like, it well, it was it's the Dave. wedding, not the bachelor party. I mean, at your party. wedding because I was yeah. like, it's Dave, uh, I know what to say. So I actually did write questions this time. It's great. Believe me, my wife will never forget it. You could do a thousand brilliant podcasts, you could get a Peabody, and she'll remember. Boy, he really didn't nail it at our wedding. And, you know, yes, that was, that was uncomfortable. But I found it amusing. Well, that, see, it was a problem. It was more amusing for me than watching you nail a speech. That's the stripes. You see, we're the godfather in that with this thing that's lasted so long and we would do anything for one another. And then, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you got to be Dewey Oxburger up there. <laughs> and I was Dewey Oxburger. But it's great. One time is all it takes for you to take the lesson. I did. I took the You've lesson Been more prepared for everything since. Yeah. You know, that was the lesson right there. I remember the next day you said to me, I go to, and you go, you got to write this, Brian, you got to write the speech. You got to write the speech. That's the lesson. I went, Oh, you got to write this, but I'm so You, go, you got to write the speech. Listen, Dave, thanks for doing this. Um, the book is incredible. Signature kill by David Levine out today. Um, and, um, you know, you got to do this, like, uh, at least once a year, maybe a little more. Maybe come and co-host uh, sometimes. We were going to do a podcast. Yeah, well, we always thought before there even was podcasting, we thought if it didn't work out, we could do a third-tier radio show. I still Talk think radio, sports radio. Well, no, listen, you've blown the doors off now. Now you'd be a first-market guy. You're like a hugely impactful podcast guy. But we would get. Toge- but no, no. Oh yeah. I would anchor us back down can't to take third us down the third time. You have to build it up. We go a to team. All start in Omaha, but if you want to, I'm in. Thanks everybody <laughs> for listening. Uh, see you next week. You can find David. I was about to give you your Twitter, but you've never tweeted. Maybe tomorrow. I, I might maybe, start. You never Maybe know. start. David is at David Levine, D A V I D L E V I E N. Yeah. I E N. Um, on Twitter. Um, at Brian Koppelman. If you want to, uh, email me you can email me themomentbk at gmail.com do not if you send me uh, screenplays or do not send me screenplays or TV treatments or screenplay treatments if you do all of Dave's martial arts instructors from the beginning of time will find you and do something terrible to you and uh but you can send me anything else and I'll read them and I will respond uh, in due course and I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman thanks and uh go to iTunes and rate the podcast and review it unless you have something bad to say then uh Keep it to your damn self. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.